chapter 6. We are concluding a section in the, well, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We'll finish chapter 6 this morning, which concludes a major thought of the portion of this message, but this line that we're going to be in today, that we are to seek God first and foremost, that we are to seek his righteousness first and foremost of our life, this is central to the Sermon on the Mount, and it is very central to what Matthew is communicating. So we're going to read through this section, and then we're going to back up and really get just a high-level view of what Matthew is discussing as he's getting to this point in Scripture, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So therefore, this is uh, Matthew 6.25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but... Seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Quick note before we jump to a very high-level view. I just mentioned this. This is the thrust of this sermon. It's the thrust of the book of Matthew. But this word for righteousness, this is the last time this word shows up in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, is, Jesus mentions it one more time, referring back to John the Baptist. But we're sitting in this central theme of Jesus communicating what the kingdom of God is all about, which we're going to see that word over and over and over again as we keep going through Matthew. But this word for righteousness disappears in word only but throughout the rest of Matthew, what he's conveying about Christ, the idea of righteousness will continue to be exemplified and demonstrated and taught on from a variety of pictures. So I told you that we're going to get a high-level run at what Matthew is getting at. Remember, Matthew is a man in his time, in his culture, in his place, in his personality, with all of his ideas, with all of his background, where Jesus walks up to his tax booth one day and says, You, Matthew, you come follow me. And this is, this is we're sitting at towards the end of, we don't know if it's the end of his life, 
But it's after Jesus has been crucified. It's after his resurrection. It's after the Holy Spirit has been poured out. It's after these, this time period of the book of Acts, most of the book of Acts, where we're watching the gospel go out and all, to all these different communities and watching people respond to who Jesus is and to who is right and what his righteousness is and what it looks like as people are looking to him and being transformed by him in all their individual communities, their individual households, their individual personalities. Matthew's thrust, Matthew's goal, I, he, he wants you to know the man Jesus, God in the flesh, who he touched, who he heard, who he watched, who he learned from, who he was radically transformed by. This is not some religious mythology. This is a man who was deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And as he experienced Jesus in his life, he's watching Jesus become the fulfillment of all of these promises, yet at the same time waiting for there are so many more promises that he will fulfill in the future. And this is what Matthew is teaching us. This is what he is proclaiming to us throughout. Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy and his roots because he's linking Jesus back to the Old Testament. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. When you sit with that idea of who is Abraham's promised son, we sat in that narrative at Christmas time being Isaac, the promised son. But we watch Isaac as this promised son, as this promised seed, and that Abraham's descendants were going, was going to be a blessing to all nations. We don't see that fulfillment in Isaac. Isaac's life comes and goes, and all nations were not blessed because of his promised son, Isaac. You sit with the covenant to David. David, your son is going to sit on the throne of Israel for all eternity, forever and ever. We sit with Solomon. How much do you like Solomon, ladies? You want your husband to have more than one wife? How about if a thousand of them to compete with? We watch Solomon in his, all of his wisdom and all of his glory and all that God gave to him. We watch him squander so much of his life. Once we finish Matthew, we're going to go back to Ecclesiastes because Solomon, an old man, gets down to the point that everything is vanity of vanities. This life is just a vapor. And he gets into this idea today that all of these things that we pursue, that we consider to be important, man, God gives us a lot of experiences, relationships, things that we get to enjoy in this life. But if it's not under the umbrella of the Almighty God and on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't mean anything in the end. But you watch Solomon in his wisdom, awesome, but you watch a lot of his life experience. He's not the promised son. He died. He didn't sit on the seat of David for all of eternity. You watch David's descendants, broken man after broken man after broken man until the culture gets taken out by the Babylonians as a judgment by God. And that's what this genealogy is getting to. Here is Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the promised son that God promised to David and all of that imagery. He is the promised seed of Abraham. You sit in the next part of the narrative where it's talking about our God coming in the flesh, this virgin birth testimony. It's pointing all the way back to the promise that was given to Eve in the garden. Your seed, Eve, will crush the serpent's head. 
Yet at the same time, your seed's heel is going to be struck by the serpent. It all points to here is the promised seed that is going to destroy the division between man in God's image that was broken there in the garden. Her seed restoring that, but at the same time, he was going to be struck. He died on the cross, yet death did not have victory over Christ, his resurrection. This is all of the imagery that is tying to this. And then in, in Matthew continues in this narrative, he's pointing to the time that Jesus was born in is a time where the nation of Israel is not abiding in all of these incredible promises that God has given. Because even after they come back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity, after a period of time, then it's the Greeks that come in and cause all of this trouble. You have a bright spot there in the time of the Maccabeans where there was this throwing off of the ruling of the Greeks, but that only lasted a short period of time for the nation of Israel. And then after the Greeks, then the Romans come in. So when you sit in this time that Jesus is born, this is, this is a nation that is living in all of these promises. And just like the culture was underneath Egypt and underneath Pharaoh in their slavery, crying out for a redeemer, crying out for freedom from their slavery, as you're sitting with the time that Jesus was sent into, the culture is crying out again to the God who created the heavens and the earth to free them from their oppressors and to be the fulfiller of all of his promises. And again, at this time, this is 400 years after Malachi, the last prophet that was sent to this culture as the voice of God telling them to repent and to turn back. So they're sitting in their history as Jesus is sent. One of the very sad commentaries is who is the king of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth? It's this man named Herod. And what does Herod do? Here's some wise men that come from the east who know the word of God, who know the prophecy of Daniel, have numbered out when the, the Messiah is to come from Daniel's prophecy. And here they come from Babylon of old to come and worship him who has been born king of the Jews. And the Jews themselves miss their prophecy. They're missing their king. They don't know their own word, and they're not prepared and ready and watching for their king to come. And their king that is sitting on the throne is acting like Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because just like Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, sought to kill the Egyptian children, what does Herod do? Seeks to kill the one who has been born king of the Jews, and not just kill him, but kills this entire community of children two years and older to keep and to hold on to his kingdom and his reign. That's the contrast. Here is the nation that is to image God and is the receiver of all of God's promises, yet they're acting like Egypt and they're acting like Babylon. You get into this narrative where they, Jesus and his family, they flee to Egypt as he's a child. So they flee to this place that represents the world, that represents their old slavery. And when God calls his son out, there, there's a reversal of this image. Because Jesus wasn't enslaved by the world when he was in Egypt. And they're sitting in this Exodus story. Matthew, again, is sitting in the Old Testament. These are the images that he grew up with. And Jesus being the fulfillment of the promises and being the counter to the behavior of all of Israel's history. It's, it's awesome to sit in. 
And then you get into chapter 3. This is, this is this cosmic drama. We get to go chapter after chapter. You have all of this drama of his birth and fleeing this violence and going into Egypt and the family coming back and going to this know-nothing town of Nazareth outside of the Sea of Galilee. And then the pause button gets hit for 30 years. We just get to skip chapters, right? We get to skip in the time period. But the culture is still there waiting the, the, the vision that the shepherds saw, they have to sit in that vision of the testimony in regards to here is the king of the Jews. they got to wait for him to grow and learn. And then chapter 3, you sit, here's John the Baptist. He's the fulfillment of a prophecy out of Malachi. Here comes the spirit of Elijah. And what is John out there doing in the wilderness as a prophet? It says that he's preaching this message of repentance. Because you watch the, the current of not just the Jewish culture that took on the image of the world, but you take on the current of human beings and human culture for millennia. It's like trying to go upstream against a fire hydrant. If we went and turned on a fire hydrant full blast on us, none of us would be able to go upstream against that pressure. Who do we have to have in front of us? we got to follow Jesus. Because that pressure is nothing to him. He is against that pressure. He is the one that we're following. He is the one that we're walking behind. And here John is sent into this, into this culture. And he is preaching a message against the stream of the culture, against their religious ideals. And it's a message of repentance. It's a message of turn, be transformed. But it's a message that's solely associated with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And again, all the way back in Genesis, you have God and his perfect creation creating Adam and Eve in his image, in that relationship, in this earth, in that dominion. That's the imagery of what it means of God's kingdom. He's ruling. We see the brokenness. We sit in all of that. And John is sent to this culture to prepare this way because the promised one is coming. And then the promised one comes on the scene. What does John say about Jesus? There's the lamb. There's the seed of Eve. There's the son of David. There's the suffering servant. There's the sacrifice. There's the priest. There's the king. There he is. Again, you gotta, you gotta sit in the cosmic drama of the scene. We're sitting, I guarantee the forces of evil, that spiritual climate when Jesus shows up on the scene to be baptized by John, I guarantee all of, all of Satan's side is rushing against that activity and all the power that they have. But what does John see? What's the testimony that John sees? He sees the Spirit of God descending in this gentle, peaceful-like dove and resting upon and anointing the Son of God in the flesh, empowering him for ministry as the voice of heaven declares what? There is my beloved son, the object of my love, the one who has been with me for all eternity, the source of creation, the promised one, all the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to the new, they're all wrapped up in that one. There he is. Listen to him, hear him, follow him. 
And the testimony we get, here we have now after God, the Father, declares who this beloved, unique, only Son is. You watch Satan come rushing in to what? Testing what kind of son he's going to be. And again, this links back to the imagery of the Exodus. You have Moses has two periods of 40 days up on Mount Sinai being tested. Moses is being tested. The culture of Israel down at the foot of the mountain is being tested. They fail in that testing as they turn to idolatry and make themselves a calf. And there's your God that brought you out of Egypt, Israel. They failed. And as we watch Jesus being tempted by the devil at the end of these 40 days, when he's weak in his flesh, we watch him be this counter to the anticipated story of the failure of the Jews historically. There he is, the son, successful against the temptation of the devil. Passionate, awesome testimony. And when he is revived in that in his flesh and strengthened at the end of that temptation. Now we watch Jesus go into his public ministry. And as he's going into his public ministry, he's saying the exact same words of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the people, to turn their hearts back to their God and away from their religion, but to God and to a relationship with him. And Jesus's message is repent, turn, be transformed, think differently. And this is this radical interjection of Jesus into the culture of his day. And this is the radical interjection of Jesus into our life today and into our culture. And Jesus has the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. Who God is. Who he is as king. Who he is as creator. Who he is as Lord. Who he is as lawgiver. Who he is as judge. Who he is as priest. All of that is represented in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to watch this repetitious narrative be proclaimed from all different angles in Matthew's testimony of all that's going on. This is awesome. And not only is he preaching a message. He's going to individuals. And he's speaking to them face to face. And he's saying, you, you follow me. Repent. Turn. Make the choice to follow me. I will make you to be somebody that you're not. I will bring you not just into my kingdom. I will make you to be a participant in the proclamation of my kingdom. Not only in your own soul, but in your household. In your community. Most definitely in your congregation as we preach the word of God to one another and image God to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Matthew's telling us, I saw these miracles. He's going from community to community, Sabbath after Sabbath, opening up the scroll of the Old Testament. Here's what the word of God says. Here is who I am. Here's the demonstration of the power and the truth through these healings, physical healings, mental healings, the casting out of demons and all of that oppression in people's life. All of this freedom being expressed in the Old Testament. Here's God's promises. And the people are watching this and witnessing this. That's the scene of the Sermon on the Mount. That's already the immediate background. And people just like you, just like me, from all walks of life, they're listening and they're following. And Jesus sees the multitudes. He climbs up onto this hillside. And we're told that he begins to preach this message. 
And in this message, its focus is the kingdom of God, what it is all about, and his righteousness being a gift to us. You sit in the Beatitudes at the beginning of this message. It's who among you hungers and thirsts for righteousness in you, in your community? You're going to be filled because you're going to be satiated in your relationship with him as he transforms you and as he provides for you. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. A lot of people want to say there's so many people that are poor in spirit because they're poor materially, which is a lot of the subject matter that Jesus presses into even today as we're going to sit in it. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. You shall see the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are pure in heart. You shall see God. He gets into this, this heart. Here's, here's what the kingdom of God is all about in God's character being imaged in his people who are following the king. And then he shifts into these definitions of identity. As you were following me, you are salt. You are a preserving factor in this whole world in which you live in. Salt is something that it, it, it's, it, as a uh, preservative, it's something that creates longevity in, in meat. So as God puts us into this culture, it's something that adds flavor. In the words that you're there proclaiming, you were there to add, add God's flavor, not your own flavor, because your own flavor is disgusting. But there we are to add the flavor of the Lord to other people's lives as we speak words out of our mouth. You are a city set on a hill. That, that imagery, again, part of it is the image of God being light. Part of it is Jerusalem was to be light to the whole world, to all nations in regards to who the true, true and living God was. Failing in that, here being brought into his kingdom, you are light. You are the light of God in this world. And when people see you work for your God, they're going to respond to it. And they're not going to respond with the accolades for you and how awesome you are. They're going to respond to God. God, you are incredible. Because they're watching him be imaged in you and through you. And then Jesus shifts in the message. Don't think that I came to destroy all of this. I came to fulfill all of it. Every last line, every word is going to be fulfilled. And then he gets into, as he's saying that, he gets into this line, unless your personal, personal righteousness exceeds that of all of your religious heroes, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't even be a part of it. You can't even gaze through the window. And he starts getting to, into this teaching of, here is what the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven looks like in our lives. Here's this foundational character in the Beatitudes. And here, how many of you struggle with anger, violence, lashing out with words, lashing out with hands? How many of you struggle with lust, lust of the eyes, lust of the heart, not just sexual, but yes, sexual, but the lust of all things that we can have these unhealthy desires for? How many of that, that, how much of that violence and that lust breaks into divorce and broken marriages, broken relationships within families? 
How about the words that come out of your mouth? Are you always embellishing the truth about you or the truth about your church or the truth about some other things that don't matter? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to embellish anything about you. Your identity and your image is that of Jesus himself. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. How about when somebody hurts you? You want to hurt them back? Don't retaliate. Be salt. Be light. Seek God in prayer. How do you respond to this person and not retaliate in like kind, but go the additional mile and put forth that extra effort in relationships, relationships with people that you know that they don't deserve your time of day. They're not worthy to have access to you. Yet, Jesus is telling you to die to you to be the image of him for that person because they might respond to the gospel. Love your enemies. Bless them. Pray for them. Trust God with them. This is this radical transformation of what the righteousness of God is as a gift to us as we are following him by faith. And this is what his kingdom is to be about. This is as we pray to him, this is our praying for his kingdom to dominate our own souls. Again, our homes, our spheres, our workplaces, our culture, whatever that may look look like, we want his kingdom to come. We want his will to be done. And that's where he shifts in this sermon of, in your righteous acts, the motivation of your heart, why are you doing these things? Why are you looking for God's kingdom? Why do you want to image his righteousness? Is it for the stage performance? Is it to be one thing with the, as a hypocrite and as an actor before the public and to be a different person behind the scenes? Don't be like that. Your father sees you and he knows you. So when you do your righteous acts, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, it's not about a religious performance. It's about your relationship with God. Because it's the motivation of your heart, where your treasure is, what you value, what you desire, that's where your heart is. That's where your meditation is. That's where your effort and energy goes to in your service. That's where your money goes to. That's what your conversation about. Whatever your heart is meditating on, out of your mouth, your heart will speak. Out of your behaviors, it's, a, it's revelatory of what's your priority, where your, where your heart is. And Jesus says, be cautious about your eye gate because we see all of this stuff in the world. And all of this stuff in the world that causes us to want. I want to be like them. I want to have what they have. I I even see in the word of God, I want these different, wonderful religious experiences. And he's saying, be careful about what you place your eyes on. Because your eye is a, a gate into your soul. And in that eye gate, if you are allowing light, the light of God into your soul, how great is the light? If you're playing religious games and the light that is coming into you is really breeding about darkness and unhealthy doctrine, unhealthy thoughts, unhealthy behavior, he says, how great is that darkness within you? And then he gets into the conversation about money. You can't serve two masters. 
You can't deserve your desire. You can't serve your desire for more. You can't serve your desire uh, to have money and let it be your master and let it tell you what to do in your life and in your behavior and be the motivator behind why you exist. You can't serve that and serve God as king in his kingdom and his righteousness. It's impossible. All of that is the thrust of getting to this seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff. Everything that you need, your God will be your provider. And sit in this language. He's telling us, therefore, it's a therefore statement in light of everything that he's already said. Do not be anxious. I don't know how you're wired. Typically, I'm not an anxious individual. But when I have stresses that come into my life, my flesh response isn't anxiety, it's aggression. You know, I'm going to fight. It's not going to be a flight thing for me, um, which has all of its issues in my flesh that I have to surrender to the Lord every single day because I get aggressive with those um, things that cause me anxiety. Let's put it that way. I mean, there's all kinds of things that well up anxiety. I was just talking to Luke before we came into here, all about the cash flows in life. Does cash flow stress anybody out? Young, married, kids. I remember being that age where you've got to plan all of your categories. You have to think about these things. You have to look to God for wisdom. We have all these categories of fixed expenses in our culture. We have all of these options of variable expenses in our culture. We have these other things that we want. We want to plan for retirement. We want to take a vacation. We want to give. We want to be a blessing to others. We can't do it all. So a lot of this stuff can become anxiety-producing. And that's just the money side of things. How about the relations side of things? The people stress you out. They worry you. Oftentimes, your spouse can really cause anxiety in your life. Your children, as you're trying to keep them from killing themselves just in their daily life as they're growing up and maturing, creates a lot of anxiety and stress in our lives. Why? Because we can't control it. We can educate, we can teach, we can be an example and a pattern, but ultimately every single one of us has to make our own decision, right? So in all of this conversation, Jesus is saying, do not worry about what? Your life. You want to save your life? You lose your life for Jesus' sake. His righteousness, his kingdom, having this open hands, Lord, here I am. You've made me, you know me, you've led me to this point in my life. My life is yours. And my life is wonderful. You have given to me so many different blessings, opportunities, relationships. I love my life. Yet in my life, there comes all different kinds of stressors, things that can cause anxiety, in this, Jesus is pressing into an aspect of poverty of the day. So much of our life is revolving around our basic needs. 
We live in an extremely wealthy culture. A lot of the things that would cause the culture that he's speaking to, anxiety, we don't have to press into. Some of our culture does. But he's just talking about the basic needs of life. As he is communicating to these men and women on the hill, many of them have absolutely no idea where their next morsel of food is coming from. Many of them don't have a closet of clothes to go and choose from. It's they have a singular garment, some undergarments, an outer cloak, and that may be all that they have. Unwashed, smelling like the body, smelling like mold. These are the, this is the poor in the spirit. These are the, these who are mourning and grieving in their daily life, having all of this anxious pressure thrown upon them just for their daily sustenance. So it has a very specific instruction point for those who that is their life context. It has the same instruction point for even for those of us who have an abundance. Do we really think that our life is about the clothes that we wear, the types of food that we eat? I'm annoying when it comes to food. I already told you before, I got a really unhealthy relationship with food, but I'm really one of these weird guys. I can't eat gluten. I can't eat sugar. I can't eat eggs. I can't eat this. I, it drives me nuts. I have to think about every morsel of food that I put into my mouth. It's obnoxious to me. But that's not what my life consists of. And this is the argument that he's getting into. When you look, when you look intently at God's creation, does he provide for the birds? They're not planting seeds. They're not harvesting a crop. They're not gathering anything into barns. Does God provide for his creation, yes or no? And we say yes. And then we see a lot of death in his creation also, because not every single one of those precious little birds gets all of its food and nutrition that it needs. But he's saying, look at God's creation. He takes care of his creation in the midst of all of its brokenness. Do you not know you're superior to? I love animals. Animals were not created in the image of God. Male and female, human beings were created in his very image. You are special, you are unique, you are loved. God did not come to die to save the rest of his creation. He came to sacrifice himself for the sins of humans. You are of more value. Do you not know? He'll provide your food and your drink. Do you not know it's your body that needs to be covered? It's more than clothes. Through faith in Jesus Christ, your body is the temple, is the dwelling place of the creator of the heavens and the earth. Your body is more than the clothes that are on your back. But then he gets, at the end of this argument, he gets into this one line. He says, oh, you of little faith. We don't have time to go into the different scenes, but in uh, Matthew chapter 8 is when there is a storm. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The boys are going nuts and wake Jesus up. Don't you know that we're going to die? Wake up. And Jesus calms the storm, 
They're marveled by his power, the authority of his word over this storm. But when he looks at his boys, he says, oh, you of little faith, why do you fear? Fear is not the root of faith and fear is not the product of faith. There's a very specific instruction point in bringing out and highlighting, guys, you're not demonstrating great faith in this life experience. And there's a correction there. It's a soft rebuke. It's inviting them to greater faith in their relationship with him. The next one comes at the tail end. This is in Matthew 14. It's the tail end of the feeding of the thousands. He just produced out of very minimal amount of food, just fed the masses. The whole imagery is the little that you see in your life. He is able to take the little and produce, not just for you. He's able to produce in his kingdom and in his righteousness all that is necessary for godliness, whether it's in the kingdom to come or in the kingdom in this life. And it's another scene where he sends the disciples forward. It's another storm. And he comes walking on the water. And Peter's, all right, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come out on the water with you. Demonstrating great faith, right? And Peter walks on the water. But then what does it say? He gets his eye gate onto the boisterous wind, to the storm, to the waves. He gets his eye gate off of Jesus and he starts to sink. Lord, save me. Little faith. The next time he brings up little faith, it's on the tail end of the next feeding of thousands. And in that scenario, you have the Pharisees, they're coming and demanding the sign. And Jesus saying that that's an evil and adulterous generation. Only the sign of the son of Jonah is going to be given. And Jesus now warns his boys about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven, the sin that religion has bred in their culture. Be aware of that heart. Be aware of that mind. There is not the kingdom of God in those men. That is not the righteousness of God in those men. Beware of the leaven of their teaching and how it permeates your own soul and your own mind and your congregation and your culture. Beware. And the boys start getting into this conversation about Jesus is mad because we didn't bring bread. And again, this instruction of little faith. What's really powerful for me is after Jesus's death on the cross, buried in the tomb, rose again from the dead on the third day, making himself known in his resurrection, in his body, in all of this, you know, you got the, the disciples all locked away and Jesus appears in their midst in his glorified, resurrected body. Touch me, listen to me, eating food with them, tangible, real resurrection. Matthew's witness and testimony of this event. We're told that they, at the end of this, at the very end of Matthew chapter 28, before... Uh, before that great commission to go in the world and preach this gospel to everybody. It says that some of them believed. And then it says that some of them doubted. Little faith. It's, it's brought about through doubting the nature and character of God. Little faith is the product of questioning God's righteousness and his righteous acts. 
Little faith is the product of not trusting and understanding who God is as sovereign king over his entire creation. And these are, this is, we got to preach this to ourselves in the mirror because there's all kinds of things that get our eyes on that rather than our eyes on our incredible, awesome God and his kingdom and his righteousness. And that's where Jesus gets into in this, in this closing out this section of this teaching. Therefore, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your drink. Don't worry about your clothes. At the beginning of his instruction on prayer, he used the exact same words. Don't you know that your father, the God of his kingdom, your father knows all of your needs before they even come to your mind. He knows your present. He knows your future. Here is our kings, our lords, our teachers, our rabbis, our priests' instructions to us. Follower of Christ, seek your God first and always in all circumstances. For the food that's on your plate, for the clothes that are on your back, for the relationships in your life, for those things that you would define as small and you would tell God, I got this and you don't got it. Or those great big, if God, if you don't answer me right now, my whole life is going to be destroyed kind of prayers. Seek God first. His kingdom, his reign, his laws, his love, his light, his rules. Go sit in the prior portions of this sermon. It is hard to live. I'm not coming and telling you that if you are anxious in your personality, you're a sinner and you have no relationship with God. We all have anxiety. How do you respond to that? In your anxiety, in your worry, you seek the kingdom of God first. You seek the gift of his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. You got a problem with the injustice you see in this culture? I do. Seek first God's righteousness in here. Seek his kingdom in here. If that God and that kingdom and that righteousness, if that is your treasure, there's your heart. There's your words. There's your actions. And then again, after that again, once again, he says, therefore, don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Yes, be wise. Yes, make plans. Don't stress about the unknown. I love that there's this acronym for fear. False expectations appearing real. We have all this stress about what could happen tomorrow. The sky is going to fall tomorrow if this event occurs. 
throwing all of this stress, all this worry into, into tomorrow, throwing it into all these different other ideas that end up becoming divisive in your own soul, distracting in your own soul. And this is where that singular faith, God, I trust you. I trust you today. I know that you know my needs. I'm going to trust you for tomorrow. Today's got a lot of problems. There's enough bad, evil, wickedness, brokenness in my own life and the life of others that I can step into and shine the light of Christ in today. Lord, so lead me today. Let my eyes be on you today. I'm going to trust you for the today, and I'm going to trust you for tomorrow. So, worship team, come on up. This is, this is our choice this is our response and what we do with life's circumstances. If you've been a believer for a while, you, you know this. This is not new information for you. But I've been a believer for a while too. And I know that I need to preach this message to my soul every single day. Because I have this tendency within my flesh, trying to trust in my flesh, trying to trust in my own strength, my own plans, how I'm going to work through things. And sometimes I'm not seeking God first. I'm not seeking his kingdom first. I'm not seeking his righteousness. I'm trying to do it through a different means. And I always end up in that anxiety, in that aggression, in that anger, off. I'm lashing out with my mouth, and now I've got to go make this relationship right. I've just done something that now I've got to go make that right. We, we sit in this, Right? This is the message that you need to preach to your own soul as we participate in communion. This is what we're, we are remembering, that our God sent his son, our king, to be the fulfillment of his word and his promises. Not just in history, but he promises to be all that he has claimed to be in the past to make himself known to us today. Jesus, you were sent to die for my sins. You gave your body over as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as the priest, as the mediator. In obedience, in love in your relationship for your Father, and in love for those that you created to be containers of your image and your glory and your kingdom and your righteousness. When you take that bread, you're remembering his body. You're remembering all that he has revealed himself to be. When you take that cup, this is the cup of the covenant. This is his promise. I have promised to transform you. I have promised to make you new, to give you a new mind and a new heart and a new life, not just today, but tomorrow. That tomorrow that you're worried about, you're still going to have a new relationship with him tomorrow. What about when I die? There you are. You're going to open up your eyes. Your eye gate is going to see your God. Oh, my. So even if this feels familiar, take some time in response and how you need to and in the stressors that you have in your life, you, child of God, follower of Jesus, seek him right now. What's he speaking to you? What does he need to provide? What storm does he need to calm? Lord, here we are. 
May you teach us and may you bring about great faith in our souls. I pray for the man or the woman, Lord, who hasn't made that initial step of bowing the knee, having that confession, Lord, I am a sinner. I am broken. I am weak. I have tried it my way. And all I'm doing is repeating the cycle of sin in my own life. Jesus, come and save me. Save me from my sin. Save me from, my de- from death. Give me the life that you have promised. You pray that prayer right now. For those of us who know him already and we're walking down this path of life, following him, seeking his glory, seeking his life, seeking his life. Here we are, Lord. We confess to you that we will choose to die to ourselves every day. God, help us so that we can live the life that you have promised today and for all eternity. Flood us with your righteousness, Lord, your justice, your rightness, your uprightness, your purity. Cause us to be those bright and shining citizens of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.